Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be, Mark chapter 1, and uh, I was reminded this week um, of the great privilege that it is uh, to get to preach the Word of God. Um, I was also reminded this week of the great responsibility that comes with the preaching of the Word of God, and I, I want you to know um, that this is something I take seriously, and uh, as I, as I went through this passage this week, um, it's my heart's desire every week uh, to make sure that I'm not preaching what I want to preach, um, but we're preaching what the Bible says. Um, because my words of wisdom would fail you time and time again, every time. Uh, but God's words of wisdom never fail. And so as we come to the Word of God this morning, it's to His words of wisdom that we look, and I pray um, that they would do a great work in us even today. I'm going to read the passage again. It, it's short. If you're familiar with the other Gospels, um, probably the things that we're going to look at today would be broken up into two sections and probably cover 10 to 15 verses each. Um, but as we look in Mark's Gospel, we understand that he uh, writes very rapidly. He doesn't give us a lot of the details, uh, but he's writing with a purpose. And I, I want to say this as well as we go through Mark, um, that as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we're probably not going to go to the other Gospels much. And the reason is, is because I want to preach what Mark says. Um, he wrote with a purpose. And I think if we spend all of our time going to the other Gospels to see all that they have to say, then we're really missing out on what Mark wrote. We're missing uh, the thrust behind what he's saying. And so we'll go there some uh, to get clarity in, in times where things might be confusing. Uh, but most of the time as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we're, we're really going to stick with the Gospel of Mark um, to just see what God impressed upon his heart to write um, to us. And so Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13 again says this, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. God, we thank you again for your word, and we pray that you would do with it what you know is good and right and true. God, I pray that, that if there's anything that I will say that would be a distraction to your work, that you would keep me from saying it. God, I pray that we would focus on Christ this morning, and certainly that is who Mark is describing to us. And I know we don't have a lot of the details that the other Gospels give us, but God, I pray that in the way that Mark wrote, that you would do a great work in us this morning as we focus on your word. We pray again, God, if there's any here who have never trusted Christ, that they would come to faith this morning, understanding their need of a Savior. God, we pray for those of us who are saved, that we would continue to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. God, we pray for the kids downstairs as they sing songs and, and learn a Bible lesson, God, that it would just not be a head knowledge that they receive, but God, you would implant that word deep in their hearts and the truths that they learn today, God, that they would, they would stay with them for all, all of their time on this earth. We thank you again for all that you do for us. Uh, may you be glorified through it all. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Practical Christianity. What do you think of when you hear that term? 
Our minds could probably go in many different directions and talk about many different things, but one definition that I read this week was this. Practical Christianity is the application in all affairs of life of the doctrine of Jesus. And so simply put, practical Christianity is just taking what we see in Christ, taking what Christ taught, giving or taking the example that Christ gave, and applying those things to every area of our lives. I like that definition, and it fits well with our time in Mark's gospel this morning. And as we started the gospel of Mark, we said that Mark was a fast paced writer. He uses that word immediately some 42 times to show the the fast-paced nature of Christ's ministry, uh, but also to connect the things that Christ did rather than leaving them simply as separate accounts. As Mark was writing, his desire was to make a beeline to the cross, to show the Christ who came, and then show what that Christ did as he died in our place. Mark is showing us Christ as the suffering servant who is also the Son of God. Mark is showing off the works of Christ more than he's showing us the words of Christ. Throughout this gospel, we'll find that though Mark is lacking in the area of details, he is rich in purveying to us this idea of what our lives are supposed to look like as followers of Christ. It's books like Mark that we should be thankful for because they don't leave us guessing. They give a clear picture of what Christ's ministry looked like and it gives a clear call to believers to live this very same life. Passages like the one that we're looking at today will remind us that Christianity is more than head knowledge. Christianity is about living the life that has been radically transformed by Christ and it should be seen in everyday life. Mark's gospel, as I read this passage and as I read other passages, it reminded me of what Paul wrote in Romans 12, 1 and 2. As we see Christ's life condensed into uh, short snippets or, or short paragraphs, we see basically that's what Paul does in Romans 12, 1 and 2 when he says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As we go through the Gospel of Mark, we understand that that's exactly what Christ did. He lived out what was the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He lived his life as a living sacrifice. And in doing so, he's calling us to do the same. And so an important thing to remember, and we touched on this last week, is that our lives are not to be lived for us. They're to be lived for the glory and the praise of another. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6 that we have been bought with a price. And if that's true, then we are to live in our body and our spirits and in our spirits to the glory of God, for we are His. And so today, as we go through this passage, we're going to see this idea of practical Christianity being lived out in the life of Christ. Mark fast forwards through two significant scenes in the life of Christ, and he doesn't do this out of disrespect or to downplay the beauty or significance of them, but he does this because he wants us to see the connectedness and the continued forward movement in the ministry of Christ. The Gospels display for us the life of Christ, and honestly, truthfully, this is the life that we are called to if we're believers. The big idea this morning is this, the example of living the Christian life 
that is seen in Christ is a source of constant encouragement to press on. Christ was victorious where everyone else has failed, and so it is ultimately Christ that we should look to. Certainly, there are many good examples in the Christian life that we could say, I want to model that person. But where do those people that we want to model look to as their source of encouragement? They look to Christ. That's what Paul said. He said, I want you to be followers of me as what? As I follow Christ. And so Paul was never the the brunt of his own message or the source of his own message or the theme of his own message. He was always pointing people to look to Christ. And that's what Mark does in this gospel. And so in the gospels, as we're going to see next week, he calls us to follow him. But it isn't until we study the examples that were given of Christ that we truly understand what that means. And so as we go through this text together, I pray that God would open our hearts and minds to see what he would have us to see so that we could live the life that he has called us to live. By way of introduction, I want us to understand the depth of the text that is before us today. And in a casual reading, we could read through these two things in the five verses that they're contained in, and we could lose sight of of what is being said because the passage is so short. We could go right from speaking of John the Baptist, skipping over the baptism, skipping over the temptation in the wilderness, and getting into the call of the disciples, but that's not what God desires for us to do. He desires that we look at the passage before us today, that we would glean what he has for us. And truthfully, it is a rich, rich passage. Not rich and rich, but rich, rich. In the baptism of Christ, we see Christ's deity. In the temptation of Christ, we see his victory. In the baptism of Christ, we see his place in the Trinity as Christ was baptized and the Father spoke and the Spirit descended. In the temptation of Christ, we see that he, in his humanity, was subjected to the temptations that we face, and yet he was without sin, and he now stands as one who fully understands us. In the baptism of Christ, we see the glory of God rest upon him. In the temptation of Christ, we see the attacks of the enemy surround him. In the baptism of Christ, we see Christ identifying with us, the perfect standing in the place of the wicked. And in the temptation of Christ, we see Christ doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so as Mark writes, he reveals to us Jesus as the Son of God. This passage before us today in all of Mark's gospel has many fulfillments of Old Testament passages, but at the same time, it points forward to him being the one who would be the propitiation for our sins. He was indeed the God-man, and he is the Savior of the world. And so while the practical side of the story is what will focus much of our attention on today, we must understand that this is more than just a practical story. But it's a divine account that points us to the person of Jesus Christ. It reveals to us again that he is the second Adam who stood in perfection as he came from the Father to redeem a people for himself. So we'll see three things this morning that hopefully will be an encouragement to us as we think about this idea of practical Christianity. The first thing we see in verses 9 through 11 is a spiritual decision. A spiritual decision. I'm going to read these verses again. It says, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. 
And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Imagine for a moment being there and seeing this scene unfolded before your eyes. Imagine seeing John baptizing in the river and likely there were great crowds surrounding him on that day. And all of a sudden this man that probably not many people knew came on the scenes and they had a conversation. And though John didn't want to baptize him, he reluctantly gave in and did baptize him. And when that took place, a voice from heaven spoke and a dove or the spirit like a dove came down and descended upon the person of Jesus Christ. And if you were in the crowd on that day, you would have understood that something significant just happened. Did people understand it? Absolutely not. I'm sure there were some who walked away scratching their heads, wondering about the scene that just took place before them. They knew who John was. They knew the message that John preached. But who was this other man? Now, we know from John's gospel that when Jesus came on the scene, John announced that this was the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. But still, even in that snippet, even in that statement, many in the crowd would have misunderstood what was going on on that day. As we look to verses 9 through 11, we see that Christ made a spiritual decision. Think about that for a moment. Christ, who is God in the flesh, Christ who is perfect in every way, the one who never sinned, the one who came to do the will of the Father and actually did the will of the Father, he made some sort of spiritual decision that was very significant in that day, but also in our day as we think of the time that we live in as well. And we see Christ made a spiritual decision. And before we get too far into this, I want you to think about your life and I want you to think about this question. And the question is this, what spiritual decision... Have you made recently? You realize, church, that we can get so comfortable in going through the motions of what we know as Christianity that there comes a point in our Christian walk where instead of actually making decisions, we're just following the same rhythm and routine that we've always had. And as we see Christ in this example given to us, we we understand that this was a significant thing, that Christ would be baptized, but it serves for us as an example to make the decisions to do the things that God has called us to do. We know that all spiritual decisions are prompted by the Spirit. They're outlined for us in the Bible, and they're fueled by a genuine love for God. But also, as we see in this passage, that spiritual decisions are also honored by God the Father. That when God sees in us, us making decisions after the prompting of the Spirit, this is something that honors Him, and it's something that He honors in us. And so as we look to this passage today, I want to talk about the spiritual decision that Christ made. In verse 9, we see that Jesus is coming uh, to where John was to be baptized of him. And now the place that Jesus was coming from, Nazareth in Galilee, and the place that Jesus was coming to, the Jordan River, would have been despised by Jews. Nazareth was known as a dirty place. The Jordan River was known as what? A dirty river. And yet this is where Christ came to make a decision that would stand throughout the course of history as something that we should look to as our example. 
As we think of Jesus getting to where John was, we see that that Mark wastes no time on the details, and he basically just tells us that Jesus was baptized of John, but we know from the other Gospels that there was more to the story. There was a whole conversation that took place. Uh, From last week, we understand that the baptism of John was not the baptism of the Old Testament, the washings that we see in the Old Testament times, nor was it the baptism that we practice today, but it was something completely different in getting people to look to the person of Jesus Christ, to repent of their, their, their desires to find salvation in something else. And here Jesus is, and he gets baptized. And the question that we have to ask is why? Why did Jesus get baptized? Certainly he did not need to be baptized because of the message John was preaching. John's message was repent of your sins and look to Christ. Well, who was Jesus? He was the Christ. And so there was no repentance that needed to take place. And certainly the baptism of Christ is not the baptism that we see in in the church. Although there's elements of it that are pictured in this baptism. So why then... Did Jesus get baptized? Just in our day, as baptism is a symbol of us identifying with Christ, in Christ's day, and specifically when he got baptized, this was a symbol of him identifying with us. For Christ to enter the Jordan River and to stand in a place that sinners for years and years and years would have come to wash away their sins, so to speak. For Christ to stand in that water, he was saying, I'm identifying with the humanity that I will then go to the cross and die for. We understand that Matthew tells us that Jesus did it because it was the fulfillment of all righteousness. This is something that needed to be done. But in his decision to be baptized on that day, Jesus was identifying with those whom he would die for. He was identifying with those that he came to save. As John said, Jesus had no need to be baptized. That was the truth. But Jesus chose to be baptized so that he could identify with us the sinners that he came to redeem to himself. And so we can't lose the idea of what Christ did here and the significance that it carries because Christ was doing something in this moment that would stand as a testimony for the rest of time to the person that he was. He was the one who came for sinners. He was submitting himself to the will of the Father. He was fulfilling all righteousness. And at the very same time, he was identifying with those whom he came to save. Are you thankful today that Christ chose to identify with you? That he chose to subject himself to things that God should have never had to subject himself to? That he came to complete the will of the Father, to make a decision to submit to the authority of what the Word of God said as he fulfilled what the Old Testament revealed about him, but also as he submitted to the Spirit and let the Spirit minister to him and guide his life as he submitted to the will of the Father and being the one who would die for the sins of the world. And so at this baptism, we see that this is really the inauguration of Christ's ministry, and it's marked by him making a a spiritual decision to identify with the people that he would die for. As Jesus is baptized, he goes down into the water, and he comes up out of the water. We see that the heavens were opened, and the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And we don't know fully if everyone saw or heard all that was taking place on that day. I tend to think that they did. And in that moment, 
our minds are pointing to this, this truth that there was something significantly different about Jesus. And as Jesus comes out of the water, the Bible says that the heavens open. And that word open, we could look at it casually and almost think that the clouds just kind of gently parted. But that word opened, it means to tear apart. It's the same word that's used in the, the, at, at the crucifixion of Christ when the veil in the temple was rent from the top to the bottom. It was torn apart. And in both the baptism of Christ and in both the crucifixion of Christ, what do we see? We see God displaying His magnificent glory at the very same time and showing His approval of what Christ was doing. And as the heavens were opened on this day, as Christ was baptized, we see that God speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus was not on a mission to do what He wanted to do in and of himself. He wasn't on a mission to complete what he thought was best, but it reveals to us that he was completing the will of the Father. This passage is also a fulfillment of an Old Testament verse in Isaiah 64, 1. It says, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. And as Jesus was baptized, certainly the heavens would rend open. And certainly Jesus Christ did come down and God spoke of his approval of what Jesus was doing. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This isn't the only time we hear that statement, is it? As we think forward to the transfiguration of when Christ took Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain and they saw Elisha and Moses standing there and, and, and as, as God the Father spoke, as the glory of God came down, God says these words again, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And he continues the statement in that passage, passage and he says this, hear ye him. And so the approval of what Jesus was doing from God the Father would mark in the minds of those who saw these events that there was something significant about Jesus. When God says, this is my beloved son, it's also taking us back to the book of Genesis. When we see Abraham and Isaac that we just sung about a few moments ago, going to the top of the mountain, that word beloved son can also mean my only son. We know that picture in the Old Testament of of Abraham taking Isaac to the top of the mountain was really a picture of God sending his son as the ultimate sacrifice for sins. And in this passage of scripture, in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we see all of these things pointing to the reality of the person of of Christ and what he would do and the things that he would accomplish and the person that he was. But we see that it all starts with a spiritual decision that Christ was saying, I'm going to do the will of my father. What does Jesus say in the Gospels? I have meat that ye know not of. And what was that meat that he had? It was to do the will of the Father. It was to accomplish the things that God had set before him, to be the fulfillment of everything written about him in Scripture. And Christ made this decision to submit to what the Father wanted him to do. As we think about this idea of spiritual decisions, again, I admit it's a little weird for us to think about Christ, who is God, making a spiritual decision, but it really is what is exemplified for us in the text today. As we started with the question, when's the last time you made a spiritual decision? I would ask us to think about that again. Well, I've been baptized, so I'm good. I made that spiritual decision. All right, I joined a church. I was listening to a sermon this week, and uh, it was using the illustration of, of riding a bike, and 
uh, of how many of us approach the idea of making spiritual decisions in our lives. And if I was to tell you I ride my bike every day, and by riding my bike I meant, well, I have Brianna take me to the top of a hill in the truck, and then I get out of the truck and I unload my bike and I ride down the hill, and then Brianna meets me at the bottom and she loads the the bike up for me because I'm too tired at that point, and she takes me back up to the top of the hill, and I ride my bike down the hill. How much riding am I actually doing? you're, You're on your bike, you're riding down a hill. Yeah, but is there any benefit to me just riding my bike down a hill? You see, so often that's how we approach our Christian lives, and we're saved, we know we're going to heaven, we've done the things that good Christians are supposed to do, but then, like that illustration of the bike riding, we just begin to coast through our Christian lives. Friends, God has not called us to coast through our Christian lives. If Christ came and submitted himself to the will of the Father, making decision after decision, not to do his own will, but to do the will of the one who sent him, then that should be what our lives look like as well. And so what spiritual decisions are we called to make? What about things like forgiveness or surrender or forbearance, that we we forbear with love those who might rub us the wrong way? What about decisions uh, that are spiritual in areas of personal holiness, things in your private life that nobody else would know about? What about spiritual decisions regarding our finances or our humility or the ways that we're serving inside and outside of the local church? Uh, Understand that in the New Testament, every one of those things is highlighted as something that a Christian should do for the honor and glory of God. And so I would ask this today, when it comes to those types of spiritual decisions, how are we doing? Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father. And what does it say when Christ did that? that God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We made the joke last week that well done is for servants and not stakes. Um, You guys didn't laugh at that again, man. (laughs) As, As we think about the time when we will hear the voice of the Father, I wonder what words will we hear? It should be the desire of each of our hearts that we hear those same words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so as we think first off of the baptism of Christ, and we think about this decision he made to identify with us as he stood in the waters of baptism to fulfill all righteousness, as he pointed to uh, himself in fulfilling what the will of the Father was, I wonder how are we doing in the area of spiritual decisions where our desire is to do the will of the Father. And so in practical Christianity, we see that first off, there's a spiritual decision. And I would just say this before we move on to the next point. If you're not making spiritual decisions in your Christian life, understand it doesn't mean you're not making decisions. Because indecision is still a decision. Choosing to not do what God has said is still a decision. And so as we think about our lives, may we think about that truth and may we seek to do the will of the Father. The second thing we see in this area of practical Christianity is in verses 12 and the first part of 13, and that's a time of testing. In verses 12 and 13, the Bible says this, and immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, a time of testing. As I said, I love the fast-paced nature of Mark uh, because it takes us from one thing to another, showing the connectedness of what Christ was doing on this earth. In the other Gospels, as I said, we would be tempted to look at these things as individual accounts because they would, be, uh, they would cover such a great amount of Scripture. 
And we wouldn't really tie them together in the way that we will in Mark's gospel. But I think Mark, again, wrote intentionally so that we would tie these things together in some way to see how the Christian life works. As Mark uses the word immediately here in verse 12, we understand that this is a word that he likes to use some 42 times. And immediately after the baptism, we see that Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. As we think about Jesus going into the wilderness immediately, it shows the abrupt nature or the intensity of how things happen in the life of Christ. But we must note that the one who drove Jesus into the wilderness was the Spirit of God. And we could think for a moment, if we only read portions of this, that okay, Jesus was baptized, and then he got a break. He went to the wilderness just to take some downtime, to take some time for himself. But as we read through the text, we understand that that is not true. That as soon as Jesus came up from the water, Mark says that immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness where he was tempted of Satan for 40 days. Not only was he tempted of Satan for 40 days, but he was surrounded by wild beasts. And I want us to think for a moment of the significance of what is going on here. As we think of the first Adam who came, God placed him in a perfect garden. Did he not? A garden where everything was how it was meant to be. A garden where he was surrounded by animals that he got to name. And he had dominion over them. And yet here in Mark's gospel, as we see the second Adam who has come, he's not driven into a perfect garden, but he's driven into a barren wilderness. And he's driven into a barren wilderness where after the fall, we understand the animals acted very differently. And he was surrounded by these wild beasts. And you say, Dan, you're reading into the text. And I would say, no, I'm just reading the text because that's what the text says. And so Jesus finds himself in a difficult spot and he was there for 40 days. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll understand that that idea of the number 40 in numerology is very significant when it comes to the idea of testing or trial or even judgment. And I'm not huge into numerology. I've told you that before. But I think it is significant that when Noah boarded the ark, how many days did it rain? 40 days and 40 nights. That when the children of Israel wandered around in the wilderness, how many years were they there? For 40 years. There are several other connections that we can make in the Old Testament to times of trial and testing. And so we can't, uh, in our minds, think that Jesus had it easy in, in the wilderness because he was God. But we must remember that this was, in actuality, a time of trial because what was he? He was fully man. And I don't know about you, but I've never gone 40 days and 40 nights without eating. I've never gone 40 days in a barren place where I felt alone. I've never gone 40 days where I wasn't surrounded with somebody to encourage me, and yet that's the place that Jesus found himself. I want us to understand that as Christ made the spiritual decision to follow the will of the Father, what came after that was a time of testing. And I want us to understand this truth, that spiritual decisions are often a breeding ground for spiritual warfare. Have you ever experienced that in your life? 
Yes, God, I'm going to do what you want. I'm going to commit myself to your word. I'm going to live in the way that you want me to live. And in that moment, whether it's at church or in your own devotional time, you're almost on this high. And that's what we think should happen in Jesus's life as he was baptized. Well, where was the reception line? Like, where was the cake that signified Jesus made a great decision? Where was the fanfare and the applause? Where was all these things? They weren't there. And as Jesus made that decision, the thing that came immediately after was this time of testing, and he faced spiritual warfare in the desert, in the wilderness, like we can't even imagine. I remember talking to Karen Fisk several years ago when there was a family that we both knew who was going through something very, very difficult, and she made this statement. She said, Dan, it seems that oftentimes it's the people who are getting the closest to God that faced the greatest trials. And I would agree with that statement. I think there's many Christians who go through their Christian life and never face any trying or testing times because they're not really taking the Word of God seriously. Doesn't the Bible tell us that if we live for God that we're going to be hated of men? that the world's not going to understand us, that they will seek to persecute us. But why do we go through what we go through? Because great is our reward. Because this world is not our home. Think for a moment of the examples that are given to us in Hebrews chapter 11. How many of those individuals made a spiritual decision to follow God and their lives ended poorly? Most of them. Why? Because that's the way it goes. And so I'm not going to stand here and say, if you're not facing a time of testing, then that means you're not a good Christian. I think that would be an error on the other side. But I do think there should be some times in our life that because of the decisions that we're making, we go through a time of testing in our lives. So spiritual decisions are often a breeding ground for spiritual warfare, and we see that in the example of Christ. As the Spirit drives him to the wilderness, we understand that this was the will of God because the Spirit doesn't make mistakes. And so it wasn't that Jesus got baptized and then he went off on his own. No, this is what God had for him. And church, what can we also draw from this? That sometimes God will drive us into the wilderness. Why? To reveal more of who he is to us. To reveal that that he has given us all we need, as 2 Peter says, that pertains to life and godliness. That we can thrive in this Christian life, even if it's hard. And so Jesus is there, and he faced these temptations. And again, we're not going to get into the specifics of them, but they had to do with power and security and provision of needs. And wouldn't you say that that is what many of our trials and testings are about in this life as well? Sometimes God takes us through valleys where we feel that life is totally out of our control. And friend, may I remind you, life is totally out of our control. But what did Christ do? In every instance that he was tempted, he quoted the word of God. You see, he knew that even in this time of trial and testing and temptation, that there was something that would carry him through. And he quoted the word of God to Satan. And at the word of God, we understand that Satan would then have to move on to the next thing. And yet here in Christ's trial and temptation, never once did he fail. Never once did he quit. Never once did he give in. But in his trial and temptation, in his testing, he stands as a perfect example for us to follow. As the first Adam failed in the garden of perfection, 
we see that the second Adam thrived in the wilderness of temptation. And because he thrived in the wilderness of temptation and because he stands victorious, we understand that the second Adam is the one that we look to. He is the Savior of the world. He is our hope. He is the true and better Adam. But oftentimes in our lives, when these times of trial and temptation come, we think to ourselves, I've got it figured out. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6? Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so Christians, let us understand today that trials and testings are not a time for us to become arrogant. But there are time for us to fall on our faces and recognize how much we need God in our lives. And I don't know what trial or testing you are facing or will face in your life, but I do know this, that God will, cause, will give you everything you need to make it through on the other side. I think it's also important for us to understand that we don't look at the temptation of Christ as a momentary event in Christ's life where he faced something difficult but we understand that this was the beginning of a very difficult road that would end at the cross. So this isn't a one-off scenario where Christ faced something hard and then his life was easy. And what does that reveal to us? That we too will not face one-off things that are hard and then the rest of our life is going to be easy. In some way, this act of Christ facing temptation in the wilderness was sanctifying just as our trials and temptations are sanctifying in our lives as well. And so, truthfully, as we face times of trial, as we face times of temptation, our response should be to rejoice. Rejoice? Why would I ever rejoice in a trial? Why would I ever rejoice in a testing? Well, because that's the biblical example. And if we think of Paul's thorn in the flesh, what took place before that thorn in the flesh ever came? The Bible says that he was given a revelation of things that he couldn't even comprehend. He he was seeing things and hearing things that were mind-blowing. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, he says this, And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. And so Paul had submitted himself to God in such a great way that God said, Paul, I'm going to show you things that you can't even comprehend. But then what did God do? (laughs) He allowed Paul to have a thorn in the flesh. Why? to keep Paul from becoming arrogant about the good things that God was doing in his life. You see what God did not want Paul to do? He did not want Paul to take credit for who Paul was. And how many times in our lives, if we're honest, do we begin to take credit for the good things God has done in our lives? So God sent Paul through a time of testing. Paul says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And Paul didn't like this thing, we know, for he besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from him. And the answer that Paul got from God was this, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What is that? It's sanctification. That God was working in Paul, something that Paul could never bring about in his own power. And so what does Paul do? God is saying that my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul knows that God is the one who sent this trial or allowed this trial to come into his life. What does Paul do? Well, he says this, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. 
that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore will I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I think it's important for us to note that Paul says he's willing to go through these things or he's happy to go through these things for Christ's sake. He doesn't say, I'm willing to take this affliction because I've been a jerk. Well, that's the opposite of what Jesus would want us to do. But as we follow Jesus, as we commit ourselves to him as we surrender to him god will then sometimes bring trials into our lives to remind us of how much we need him and in those trials the response that we are to have is that i'm going to glory in the name of christ why because it's in my weakness that i find his true strength and as christ made the spiritual decision to submit himself to the will of the Father, he was then abruptly taken into the wilderness where he would face a time of trying and testing and temptation. And I have much more that I want to say, but we're going to move on. Because the final thing that we see is that even though he was facing this trying and testing time, we see that he was still met with a sustaining power. In the end of verse number 13, when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was facing this time of testing and temptation because of the decision he made to complete the will of the Father. The end of verse number 13 says this, and the angels ministered unto him. Some people take this phrase to think it only meant that the angels ministered to him at the end of the testing. But I think in the way that it's written in the original, and this isn't for me, it's from somebody else. It means that the angels ministered to him through the testing. You see, there's this element in our mind or this thought in our minds at times that we can can run to quickly that when trials come, it means that God has abandoned us. But friend, this text stands as a reminder that in the trial, God is ministering to us. It may be through another person. It may be through his word. It may be through his spirit. But as Peter says again, God has given us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. And if God wants us to thrive in the midst of a trial, then guess what? He's going to give us everything we need to thrive in that trial. Why? Because he's a good God. And so as we think about the sustaining power of God in our lives, we must understand, friends, that we are not forsaken simply because we're going through a trial. But in fact, it might be. It might be that God is seeking to draw us closer to him than we've ever been before. And though there might be times in life where we can't sense him in the trial, the reality is he is there. We need to understand that the spiritual privileges of the children of God are often beyond our comprehension. Did Jesus see the angels as they ministered to him? Most likely not. He knew they were there. Mark knew they were there. Maybe Mark and Jesus had a conversation about this somewhere along the way. And Jesus said, hey, Mark, I want you to understand that when I was in the wilderness, God fed me spiritually. The Father fed me spiritually in ways that I can't even comprehend. In ways that I can't even describe. And as we too are children of God, as Christ has purchased our redemption through his blood, we understand that we too will experience these same benefits. So in the wilderness, Christ 
was hungry. He was tired. He was weary. He was beaten down. He was being berated by the enemy. And yet God, through his angels, was sustaining his son, Jesus Christ. We know that Christ combated the attacks of the enemy by submitting himself to the will of the Father and the word of God. And each time Satan would tempt him with something, he quoted the word of God and the temptation and the tempter would go away. And and as we think of Christ's temptation and we think about the sustaining power of God in the life of Christ, we must rejoice that as God did it for Christ, then God will do it for us as well. Think of the stories in the Old Testament. Think of the three Hebrew boys that wouldn't bow a knee and they stood in the midst of a fiery furnace. Who was it that sustained them? It was God. Think of Esther standing up to Haman, a woman who easily could have been killed for the things that she had done. And yet who was it that sustained her and allowed her to say that I want to do what God wants me to do? It was God. Think about Daniel and the strength that he had to stand against the king. Who was it that gave him that strength that was God? Think about the prophets who had the ability to stand in times of affliction, not just from the enemy, but also from the very people of God. Who was it that sustained him? It was God. Think of David when he was running from his son. Who was it that sustained him? It was God. Think of Joseph who was abandoned, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, lied about. Who was it that sustained him and raised him up in power to do more than he could ever do on his own? It was God. Think about your life. Think about the dark times that you have faced. Maybe the dark times that you're facing right now. Think about the battle that rages within you at times when you make a good decision and all of a sudden you find yourself in the wilderness of temptation. Who is it that has and continues to promise to sustain you? It is God. And he tells us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will not abandon us like the rest of the world will abandon us. He will be with us every step of the way. I was reminded this week of Psalm 55, 72. Cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Do you want to know why you move in the midst of a trial? It's because you've taken your eyes off of the one who's promised to sustain you in the trial. Do you want to, nice, want to know why so many people don't move in the trial? It's because they've believed the promise of God. They've kept their eyes on the only one who can keep them stable when everything around them is crumbling. Psalm 73, 26 says, My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This Friday we went to a fellowship meeting and Ed Hart, many of you know him, he preached and and his health is failing. His heart is failing. He brought up this verse and said, Do you know why I'm doing what I'm doing to this day? Because God is sustaining me. Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord give, will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And Isaiah 26.3 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Friends, we could all share stories of our lives where 
we face difficulties and trials and in our hearts and minds, we almost could be persuaded to walk away from everything that we've said we've believed. But do you know why you haven't? Because He has sustained you. And as the song said a few moments ago, because He will hold you fast. When everything around you is falling apart, when your own world feels like it's coming undone before your eyes, God has promised to sustain us. And as Christ found Himself in the wilderness for 40 days, as He found Himself being tempted by Satan at least three times that we know of as we have in the Word of God, as He found Himself surrounded by the wild beasts who would have posed a threat to Him because He was a human, as Christ found Himself in all of these situations, we see that in His moment of trial, the angels came and ministered unto Him. And it's proof again that God does not forsake his children. Believe that truth. Believe that truth with all your heart. Why? Because it'll be a firm foundation to stand on when everything else is crumbling. An idealistic view of Christianity says, follow Christ and your life will only get better. True Christianity says, follow Christ and your life may indeed get harder. But in the difficulties you face, you'll find that now, in Christ, you're living for things that are of eternal worth and not simply temporary pleasure. And so as we look to the example of Christ this morning, as we think of this idea of practical Christianity, I would simply ask us, friends, how are we doing? What spiritual decision is God leading you to? Will you make it? You say, well, not now. You just told me that if I make a good decision, then I'm going to find myself in the temptation, the wilderness of temptation. And you know what? We, we laugh at that. But that's the exact reason that many people don't make good spiritual decisions. Because there's a cost. In the parables that Jesus gives, he says a couple of times, count the cost. What man intending to build a tower does not sit down first and make sure that he has funds to finish it? What man getting ready to go to war doesn't sit down first and make sure that his army is able to conquer the other army? And what Christian doesn't sit down first and count the cost? And you can say, well, that's going to cost me a lot. Friend, can I encourage you to understand that you will gain far more, far more than you ever lose. And it's not just in this life. Let us not be earthly minded in this, this text. Let us be heavenly minded. That the things that we face in this earth have an eternal payoff that we can't even comprehend. Or maybe you've made a spiritual decision and now you're finding yourself in that wilderness of temptation. I wonder, will you stay until God says go? Endurance in the Christian life, that's what the, the armor of God is all about, right? Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you can stand. And having done all to what? To stand. Stand against what? The attacks of the enemy. The trials and temptations that will flood into your life as you commit yourself to following God. Put on the armor of God and God will sustain you. I wonder... 
I wonder, do we face the things we face with an eternal perspective or a temporary perspective? The big idea that we begin with is this. The example of living the Christian life that is seen in Christ is a source of constant encouragement to press on. Christ was the victorious where everyone else has failed. And so it is ultimately Christ that we should look to. As Christ was victorious, we too are victorious if we live in His strength and not our own. As Jesus made this spiritual decision and as He was then taken to the wilderness and tested, we must also understand that He was also ministered to by the angels of God, the ministering spirits of God. And this goes to remind us that in God's goodness, even in the trials, we will find peace and He will provide the ability to take the next step. So I wonder, what will we do with a passage like this, where it's outlined for us that we're called to make a spiritual decision, and that those spiritual decisions could bring a time of testing, but that in those times of testing, God has promised to sustain us. My conclusion is that we rejoice. Why? Because if God is perfect and sovereign and knows all, then every place He leads us is where He wants us to go. And every place He leads us, He will provide for us in that place. You say, well, I don't have what the other person has. Again, friend, we're not called to live with a temporary understanding of life, but eternal. So whether or not God gives you what the next person has, honestly, in the end, it doesn't matter. And may that not be the focus of our lives as we seek to live out the life that God has called us to live. You're here today and you've never trusted Christ. Understand the Christ who stood victorious in the garden is also the Christ who rose victoriously from the grave. And because he rose victoriously from the grave, he stands as the Savior of all who will come to him by faith. Friend, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, understand that trusting in yourself will only lead to failure, but trusting in Christ will give you hope in this life and in the life to come. Will you turn to Him? In a moment, we're going to sing, and as we sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Understand, friend, that the only way to have eternal life is through Christ in you. And for those of us who are believers, let us understand that the only way, the only way to live a life that brings glory to God is to follow the example that we see in Christ. That we make a spiritual decision that we trust Him through the time of testing and we rejoice as He sustains us in this life and prepares us for the life to come.